What a marvelous summary of the apostolic message. We would do well to imitate his example. We should call on people to repent. The word repent is not a swear word, brothers and sisters. It's a necessary word in the process of evangelism. We need to call on people to turn away from sin and worldliness so as to embrace the grace, truth, and mercy of Almighty God. You cannot take hold of God if you will not let go of the world. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And and Paul also talks here about deeds in keeping with repentance. Well, if he talks about it, then so should we. We should never be afraid to commend and even require deeds in keeping with repentance. Talk is cheap, brothers and sisters. Show me your faith through how you behave. James, the brother of Jesus, says that very thing in his epistle, which is a reminder, by the way, that there is no disagreement between Paul and James. James would say a hearty amen to this statement of the Apostle Paul. We are saved by faith alone, amen? But the faith that saves us is never alone. It is always accompanied by attesting deeds. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. We often struggle to understand how deeds fit together with faith. Christianity has sometimes been reviled as teaching a form of faith that does not in any way require good living. But that isn't the gospel preached by the Apostle Paul, and it wasn't the gospel believed by the early church. We aren't saved by good works, but saved people do good works. It isn't always easy to keep that straight, so here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 26. I mentioned in our last episode that the chapter division here is unfortunate. Chapter 26 should really begin back in chapter 25, verse 23. Those several verses there, the end of chapter 25, are really the appropriate preamble to Paul's speech here. Paul is now fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus given in Luke 21.12 about having the opportunity to give his testimony and to speak about Jesus Christ before governors, kings, and queens. That day has now arrived. And in chapter 26, Paul begins to speak. We pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Let me just break in here and mention that this little phrase, I beg you to listen to me patiently, is a clue that Paul's speech is likely to be a long one. What we have in the book of Acts are summary speeches. Paul may well have spoken here for two to three hours. One of the things that we forget is that in Greco-Roman society, people love to listen to a good speech. People lined up for jury duty in that culture, unlike in our culture where we do everything to get out of it. It was a show. It was a spectacle. It was a form of entertainment. Paul found that very 
irritating at times, uh, and you hear some of that addressed in his correspondence to the Corinthians, but we should probably just notice that these are not short speeches. Paul probably spoke here for two to three hours, but the summary that we have can be read in about eight minutes, and that tells you that Luke is providing a narrative summary. Now, I say narrative because he he doesn't just give us bullet points here. He, he presents it as a literary whole, but he lets us know that it's just a summary of the main points. Now, that is not a threat to anyone's definition of inerrancy, in case you're wondering. It's simply a recognition of genre. The Holy Spirit makes use of style. I find that very interesting. Whether you do or not, I have no idea. Paul's speech continues in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Again, all throughout these speeches in the latter chapters of Acts, Paul is presenting Christianity as the logical outcome of thoughtful, obedient Judaism. And he presents himself as merely a Pharisee who has the courage of his convictions. We Pharisees take the Bible very seriously, he says. We Pharisees believe in everything the Bible says. And the Bible says an awful lot of things about a coming Messiah, a suffering servant, and a glorious resurrection. I believe that stuff. I believe that in Jesus, the hope of Israel has been realized. Why is that a problem? And why aren't there more of you standing beside me in defense of our glorious religion? That's basically what Paul is saying. In verse 8, he casts his challenge a little wider. He speaks now also to the Gentiles in the room. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Once you admit that there's a God in the heavens who does as he pleases, why would the idea of bodily resurrection strike anyone as categorically impossible? If God exists, then resurrection is possible. So again, Paul says, I don't understand the controversy. He carries on his defense in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Here Paul is making the case that he was not an early convert to the Christian movement. He also initially resisted their claims. He did not rush headlong into these things. He had to be convinced. Paul is operating under the logical assumption here that a careful, even a reluctant convert, is harder to dismiss than an enthusiastic early adopter. Paul even goes so far as to say that he vigorously opposed this group until he became convinced of their claims. Now, we should also notice that Paul says that he was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus, up to and including persecuting and even collaborating in the deaths of many innocent people. 
let's be careful to notice here that conscience can be thoroughly misleading. Paul was sincere in thinking that he was doing God's will, and he was sincerely wrong. One of the things that the Bible says again and again and again is that human intuition, human conscience even, is not authoritative. It is not reliable. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart lies to you, friend. My heart lies to me. That's why we should not treat our feelings as authoritative. We need to be guided by the word of God. Paul was led astray by his conscience. And and the same can happen. The same does happen even to religious people still today. Paul did things he ought not to have done. And he pursued his murderous agenda with all the diligence and efficiency we would expect from this gifted and zealous man. Pastor Paul, let me jump in here for a second if I can, because I'm fascinated by the fact that Paul was so sure he was doing God's work when he was persecuting Christianity, when in fact he was really operating as a tool of the devil. So how can smart people who love God and who are trying to do the right thing be so wrong and so undiscerning? How does that happen, and how can we keep that from happening to us? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that's always been a danger. But if anything, I think the danger is more acute today than at any previous point in human history. Hmm. So what do you mean by that? Well, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's Jeremiah 17, 9. Right. I remember that from the program audio. But you're saying that the danger of being deceived is greater now than ever before. Why is that? Well, a couple things stand out for me on that. First of all, nowadays, people seem to trust their instincts and impressions more than ever before. Our culture has really been emphasizing self-trust for the last 20 or 30 years. We've been telling kids to follow their hearts and to do what feels right since probably the late 90s. And now all those kids, of course, are adults, and they are trusting themselves to yeah. an unprecedented degree. Yeah, I, I, I think I remember that song from Barney. <laughs> we do tend to put a great deal of stock in our feelings today. So what's the solution to that? How can we avoid being as wrong as the Apostle Paul was early on in his life? Yeah. Well, conversion is always a gift from God, right? But it, it is also true that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I would encourage some epistemological humility for a start. Oh, that's a mouthful. Yeah, actually, all it means is humility with respect to how we know what we know. Epistemology is a word that refers to how we know things. And Bible readers come to understand that given our fallenness and finiteness, we can really only trust in what God tells us. The Word of God is ultimately reliable, but everything else is uncertain at best because it has to pass through the lens of our perceptions, our presuppositions, and our self-interest. The bottom line is we need to trust ourselves less. Sorry, Barney. Right. With apologies (laughs) to Barney, we need to trust ourselves less, and we need to trust God's Word more. It's interesting to contrast Paul's initial reaction with the later reaction of James. James has been reading the Old Testament. He's been studying Amos 9, for example, and he looks at the church and the influx of the Gentiles, and he says, this is that. Now, I think you're referring to his speech at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Yeah, exactly that. James looked at the reality in front of him through the lens of the Bible, and early Paul, Paul before he became the Apostle Paul, didn't do that. 
He just ran with his visceral reaction. He ran on his gut, and his gut was wrong. Mm. Yeah, that's a good reminder for all of us. All right, let's jump back into the story now at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. We've heard now Paul's conversion story multiple times, but here he adds something we haven't heard before. He says that after Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He went on to say, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's an expression that may seem foreign to us, but it was a well-known proverb inside both Judaism and Greco-Roman culture. Goads are those pointy sticks that shepherds use to direct their wayward sheep. Depending on the precise usage, the expression could mean fighting against conscience, and it could also mean fighting against destiny. It had that sense more in the Greco-Roman context. What it means here is that Paul has been hurting himself by resisting what he was sensing to be true. Paul had already started to feel like he was fighting on the wrong side. We sometimes think that Paul's conversion was more dramatic than it was. Now, of course, it was dramatic. But we sometimes think that Paul was charging off to Damascus with murder in his heart. And then he was struck by lightning. And all of a sudden, he had nothing but love for all the Christians. Here we learn that it didn't quite go down that way. Paul was already fighting against his conscience. He was already starting to suspect that he was on the wrong side of the Lord on this thing. That's a scary place to be. And that's a dangerous place to be. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul continues his story in verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The words that Jesus uses here to commission Paul remind many commentators of the sorts of commissions that are often given to the Old Testament prophets. So I. Howard Marshall, for example, says here, the account of Paul's call is similar to that of the prophets of Israel. See, for example, Ezekiel 2.1. And God's promise of protection to him also has Old Testament echoes as per Jeremiah 1.8 and 1 Chronicles 16.35, closed quote. Similarly, David Peterson writes here, Paul likens his call and commission to that of various Old Testament prophets, which helps to clarify his relationship with Jesus and the apostles in fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, closed quote. I think that's helpful for us to see. In the New Testament, the apostles function as the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets. Now, we've talked several times now about how in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he says that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament has been generalized somehow. 
All truly saved people, rich and poor, male and female, young and old, all truly saved people are prophets to some extent. They can they can all speak the word of God with the help of the Spirit of God for the edification and warning of the people of God. So prophecy is different in the New Testament in some respects. And, and that may even be why uh, they are specially called and these disciples are referred to as apostles as opposed to simply calling them prophets. The word apostles may be intended to indicate that theirs is a particularly and uniquely authoritative type of prophecy. Theirs is the word of the Lord. There is a unique authority to the apostles that is not shared generally with the spirit-filled disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul here is speaking of his unique authority and commission as an apostolic prophet of the Lord. I just think that's helpful for us to see. He also says some very interesting things about the specific nature of his commission. He says that he is being sent to open eyes so that people may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Every word of that is interesting. Now, much of the wording appears to be borrowed from the commission given to Isaiah. But Isaiah, interestingly, is told that he won't be successful. The the blind people he's speaking to are going to stay blind. In Isaiah 6, God says that they're going to keep on seeing, but never perceiving. But now Paul is told that he's going to be successful in opening eyes, in, in bringing people to a knowledge of salvation. That's amazing. Now, of course, Paul would be the first to say that only the Holy Spirit can open eyes and give birth to real faith in a human heart, of of course. But here, Paul is being told that he will be the instrument by which the Holy Spirit does that miraculous work. What an incredible privilege that is. And, And to some extent, we share in that privilege whenever we read and explain the apostolic gospel. That becomes the means by which the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the blind and and softens hard hearts so as to enable men and women, boys and girls, to believe. Thanks be to God. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What a marvelous summary of the apostolic message. We would do well to imitate his example. We should call on people to repent. The word repent is not a swear word, brothers and sisters. It's a necessary word in the process of evangelism. We need to call on people to turn away from sin and worldliness so as to embrace the grace, truth, and mercy of Almighty God. You cannot take hold of God if you will not let go of the world. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And and Paul also talks here about deeds in keeping with repentance. Well, if he talks about it, then so should we. We should never be afraid to commend and even require deeds in keeping with repentance. Talk is cheap, brothers and sisters. Show me your faith through how you behave. James, the brother of Jesus, says that very thing in his epistle, which is a reminder, by the way, that there is no disagreement between Paul and James. James would say a hearty amen to this statement of the Apostle Paul. 
We are saved by faith alone. Amen? But the faith that saves us is never alone. It is always accompanied by attesting deeds. Martin Luther and John Calvin both said some version of that, and you're seeing it here. This is a wonderful summary of Paul's apostolic message and ministry. May the same be said of you and me one day. Verse 21. For this reason, the Jews seized him or seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Once again, Paul says that his message, the message of Christianity, is fully in accord with everything written, anticipated, and prophesied in the Old Testament. Christianity is the logical extension of thoughtful and faithful Judaism. This is what we've been waiting for, Paul says. This is what we were promised. And this is what I believe. Verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. In this concluding scene, Festus is portrayed as thoroughly unable to penetrate the complexities of Jewish theology. But Agrippa is presented as a man who ought to know better and who does know better, but who again lacks the courage of his convictions. All are agreed that Paul has done nothing worthy of conviction. But because of his appeal to Caesar, then to Caesar he must go. Festus, no doubt, is more than happy to bump this problem up the chain. Political expedience and divine providence have conspired to place the apostle upon the biggest stage in the ancient world. From there, in accordance with prophecy, he will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ from deep inside the beating heart of Rome. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to go back to where we started in this episode by talking more about that relationship between faith and deeds. Paul emphasized in his defense before Agrippa that repentance towards God and good works towards others go together. But that isn't always what we hear, especially within evangelical circles. 
There's a widespread confusion in our little world as to the place of good deeds in the life of the Christian. So can you maybe bring some further clarity here? What is the place and role of good deeds in Orthodox, Bible-believing, evangelical Christianity? Yeah, this is an area of perennial confusion within evangelical circles. We know that we're not saved by works. And therefore, a lot of us just stop thinking about works. If works don't save us, well, then who cares? We don't need them. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we aren't saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Paul says in Ephesians 2, right after saying that we're saved by grace, not by works, he says, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So this new creation in Christ is not by good works, but Paul is very clear that it is for good works. In Romans 1, Paul says that he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So the Bible says that we are saved, that we receive grace so that we can be the people God originally created and intended us to be. Grace restores nature. It makes us good. It makes us glad. It teaches us to love. So if that doesn't happen, if there is no righteousness, if there is no joy, if there is no love, if there is no service, if there are no good works of any kind to speak of in your life, then it really does call into question whether or not you are truly saved. So that's why we often say, that we are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves us is never alone. It always produces good works in keeping with repentance. Thanks be to God. Mm, amen, and thanks for that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 